welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity One-on-One with Larry and Joe. All right. So Larry and I were talking and we decided this would be our final podcast episode. But the story doesn't end here. We feel like YouTube is going to be a better format for our discussions going forward because we really want to really transition to more kind of hands-on training, which you you really can't do in an audio-only format. So uh, we actually just recorded our first YouTube, uh, which we'll put a link in the show notes so that you know, people can go on the channel and, you know, hit that subscribe button, right? <laughs> and uh, and that way, when we post new shows, you know, on YouTube, um, people can actually see not only Larry and I talking, but more importantly, like the screens, like, you know, hands-on training. So, so we plan to really kind of just continue these conversations over there. So this is our 22nd episode. We started back on January of 2020. So here we are, Larry, two and a half years later. My goodness, that's a long time, yeah. So looking back, um, why don't you give us a summary of kind of what you've you've done over these last two and a half years um, in terms of study and employment, like what's kind of a summary of that and kind of where you are now? Okay, Um, wow. Two and a half years. Um, when I first started, um, I didn't know anything I thought I knew about computers at all. You know, everyone, oh, they're so easy. And you know, there's so much more to it. So um, yeah, in my, in my studies now, um, I am studying to be a cybersecurity engineer. So I'm in the C, ASP class, which is a little advanced class, it's more for management and stuff like that. It's real, real fun. It's heavy, <laughs> but it's fun. And um, wow, two and a half years. I mean, I, I didn't even, if you did ask me two and a half year, years ago, hey, what's a CPU? I wouldn't have had a clue. Right, and, right. Now, would you change anything, knowing everything you know now, w- would you change anything if, it, if you were talking to Larry two and a half years ago, what would you, what would you tell Larry? Um, I would tell him uh, the importance of, uh, of school. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very important. You know, you gotta, I, I think school, what it does is it, it teaches you how it should be. That doesn't mean like on a, when you get on the job, that's how it is. But it teaches you the basics that you do need to know some type of understanding because you need that. Now, people ask me pretty regularly, you know, is Larry in IT? Like what, you know, what type of job does he have now? Uh, if you could maybe just kind of describe the the current role that you have now and and again, the I- ideal role that you're still looking for. So it's kind of a lower help desk type deal, but not really a help desk. And it's not like we're doing major tickets every day, mm-hmm. like a help, help desk person would, but it's not that, 
that I can't. So um, yeah, my my ideal role right now would be to start off as a sock analyst mm. or in forensics. But I feel if I got got to be a sock, if I'm just sitting there just monitoring 24 hours a day, just monitoring tax and stuff like that and seeing what's good. And that, that kind of gives me just, I think it just get my brain going. So you, what's really interesting is the guest that we're about to bring on to the show, his name is Doug Roberts. And he had a career in law enforcement where he was doing wow. digital forensics. So he would literally, you know, they would take, you know, they'd get a warrant. And once they had a warrant, um, they could unlock someone's phone and basically pull all the photos, text messages, everything, you know, that person's whole life is on that phone, right? And so, you know, building a case, you know, evidence, you know, and there's some bad people out there, right? There's some, there's some people that really hurt others and, and just have bad intentions in this, in, in the world and community. And so, you know, being part of that in digital forensics, if it's law enforcement, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity out there. So what's interesting is is our guest was actually in that world. And he's now for the last year, he's he's really been looking for a full-time cyber job. So kind of kind of like you, like trying to transition out of IT and getting into full cyber. Now he did end up, you know, getting a master's in cybersecurity and um, a lot of certifications and everything, but he's still having a, he's having a difficult time trying to land that full-time job. So I thought that would be kind of a perfect way to sort of end these podcasts, just to show that even someone like this gentleman who has now for the past six years been in IT, he still is having difficult time getting calls. You know, and so we'll we'll hear his story here in a minute. And I know you have to go and and uh, you know you've you've been telling me you've been working a lot and studying, and that's like the, your life right now. So I won't hold you up, but I'll go ahead and bring on Doug, and then uh, you can kind of listen into that conversation. Hi, Doug. How are you? Uh, good. Yourself? Good. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me. And so we actually started uh, this podcast two years ago, January of 2020. I met him at a Bible study, and you know I was just kind of sharing about myself. And I said, "Hey, I'm you know I'm in cyber, you know, because we're saying, hey, what's your name? What do you do for work?" And so after the Bible study came up to me, and he's like, "Hey, you know, I really want to get into cybersecurity. It's my dream." And so I said, "Yeah, let's let's do it. I'll mentor you, and we'll record our conversations and." Uh, let's do a podcast. Now, what was funny is I had never done a podcast at that point. I was just like, I just really intuitively knew that it would be, it would reach and connect with people who also were like him that wanted to get into it. And I just felt like I had a lot of friends also that probably were in that same place. And by recording it and sharing it, that this might benefit a lot of people. I never would have guessed that two years later, we'd still be trying to get him in employed. And that made yeah. me truly realize how hard this this is, and that's why I wanted you to have on the show because I think that you're in this similar spot, and and it would kind of be an interesting way to kind of bookend the show, right? Opening and closing, we're still here, and even though yeah. that's not a glorious ending, it, it's just the reality of of how difficult this is, right? Yeah, I was going to ask you that because 
I, I started from the first one. I've been trying to listen to it for the past week. So I, I think I'm like at 12. And uh, everyone, I'm like, so it, did he get a job yet? <laughs> no. Yeah, I know. He's, so he's, I mean, he's, he's working, you know, um, he's, he's in IT at least. So yeah. at least he's got his foot in the door, which is, in my opinion, is always necessary. I, I don't, I don't really think you can go directly into Sire. I know that's controversial. Other people may have different opinions. The analogy I give people is like, look, when you go into the recruiter's office when you're 18 to join the military, they're not going to let you in special forces on day two, like not even right out of boot camp. You just don't go into special forces. Like you may really, really want to, but they just recognize in the military that you just, you need a few years of actually like, you know, normal service and training, all that kind of, kind of build up to that. They just don't throw you right in. And I kind of feel that that's, that's the way this is really kind of turning out. You got to have a couple of years in it to really kind of understand, in my opinion, like the assets that you're protecting knowledge of computers, how they work to, to really secure them. You know, it's, it's an interesting conversation. I wanted to ask you what, what initially drew you to wanting to get into cybersecurity? What was kind of the appeal? Um, it falls back on, on being a police officer. When I was a, a, a police officer, uh, we, we had a lot of stuff come in where, uh, you know, we're trying to collect evidence from cell phones and computers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I started, you know, I had kind of a flip phone. I, I had the, the more smartphone. So, you know, people started utilizing that more. So, um, you know, and I'm, I was only the tech savvy person in the PD. Right. So like, uh, you know, when I went in there, I, I, they were using VHS to record stuff. You know, I switched that all over to DVD to make it easier to send stuff to the state's attorneys. Um, That's cool. You know, and then and looking at like the, uh, the photos that we would take, I created like a little database so you could type in the person's name. It was an Excel mm-hmm. sheet. Uh-huh. But, you know, it would pull up the picture. I was the, the techie of the department. So, you know, they sent me to some schools with uh, the DEA and the FBI for um, electronic communication, uh, exploitation, stuff like that. Um, and that, that was awesome, going to those classes. Yeah. And I, I think that's what got me into the forensic side of it. Um, you know, so like, again, with the cell phones, <laughs> you know, we, we had an awesome device that uh, I could rip all the the, the data yeah. the text messages photos off of that right did it ever just shock you that like oh my gosh this guy's just clearly saying okay go buy the drugs here or i just shot someone over here was it just like always just surprising to you like their whole life is on the phone <laughs> and it's, it's yeah. an open book once you get into it you know or yeah. once you do your search warrant at least <laughs> right right so yeah 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 that's interesting um yeah i i think it's an interesting conversation um, because so far, I think in, this is our 22nd episode, Doug, and I don't think we've really ever gotten really deep on the forensic side of it. And I think you may actually be our first guest that actually has some experience there. So I think it might be kind of interesting, especially for people that, you know, they've heard Larry talk about, you know, he wants to get into penetration testing because he, he thinks it's kind of fun and cool to hack and stuff. And it is, right? Um, but there, there might be, how would you categorize, Doug? Uh, someone who um, is interested in learning more about digital forensics, how would they even kind of go about that? Should they go to a training course first? I enjoy reading. So, you know, that'd be my first go-to would be to try to find a book on it. And there's tons of books on it. But like um, just working with programs like uh, Autopsy, you know, to to look at hard drives and stuff like that. I mean, if that's something you want to do, you can make a little mini lab and, and do that. 
is that a commercial program they'd have to buy or is there like a a demo version or something they can get a hold of or how would you because i i love that you mentioned lab doug because you've probably heard in our episode i really feel like if someone's applying to a job they should have a lab first so that if you're talking to an employer and you have no prior experience at least you can say look i haven't done that but i built a lab because what that shows the employers wow this person is initiative they're they're spending they truly care, are interested in this they spent their personal time kind of building this so is it possible to do that in forensics as you're reading a book can you actually do like forensics and if so kind of what software you know would you recommend they they might kind of get into i don't know if there's any open source stuff uh in forensics that there they, is yeah and, and I, I do believe that that program has uh, an open source, uh, like a, a version of it. I mean, it's not going to have all the, the bits and pieces to it, but it, it would give mm. you enough. Um, yeah, like when I was doing the master's degree, um, I would follow along in the book. Like I, I would read something like what, what, they're, what, what they're doing and then try to mm. recreate it on my, mm. my computer. Mm. Um, So I want to go. I want to go through your experience a little bit. So you're, um, so you have some some digital forensics, you know, kind of background at this point in your career. Um, what happens next? Like uh, you decide to to leave, um, and then you what what's the next position you hold after leaving uh, the police force? Well, as a police officer, I was trying to get the I got the bachelor's, um, which was intelligence studies, because I was thinking more of. Um, the route of of like uh, terrorism spy stuff <laughs> yeah yeah you know because that, that was that's really interesting to me um but when i left and i moved out west um, i looked at some agencies here and it's policing is different in california yeah you could say that <laughs> yeah to the point where you know i went home to my family and i'm like i i don't think i want to do this anymore right they were supportive of that yeah um so that's when I decided like, hey, you know, what I really liked from law enforcement was that, you know, the computer forensic stuff, just the computer stuff. I've always been a computer nerd. Mm-hmm. Why not focus on that? Um, so that's when I started the, the master's degree. Got it. Okay. So at this point, you you had the bachelor's degree while you were a police officer, and then um, you moved to West Coast. Uh, you leave the police force, and then... Um, then you are uh, pursuing a master of science in cybersecurity. You obtain that, right? So you have you have a master's degree in cybersecurity, which is quite impressive, right? Um, and then what happened next in your journey? Uh, so while getting the master's, I realized that you know that was more of um, like policies, procedures, um, how to you know set up companies to be be safer the defense in depth um so i went in more of a hands-on thing so i i also got while i was getting the masters i also went and uh, did a year uh to get an associates in networking perfect. found i really like networking okay okay <laughs> perfect no that's good you know networking so, is is so critical to cybersecurity because you unless you have physical possession of a device 
you're going to be either a blue team kind of defender uh, across the network or you're going to be, you know, attacking from across the network, right? So it, networking is is absolutely the fundamental ABCs of cybersecurity, right? So you, so you loved that part of it. That's cool. So then you, you got the, so you, you got the master's first and then you got the additional education in networking, which is awesome. Got them together. Oh, at yeah. the same time. Okay. At the same time. And then, and then what happened next after you got the associates? Um, so while I was, I was doing those, um, I found a, a part-time job, um, at a school as their, uh, the technology coordinator. Okay. Glorified keyboard cleaner, pretty much. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. But you got your foot in the door. Yeah. I got my foot in the door and, um, that was pretty awesome for, for six months. And then, uh, an MSP, uh, came into the, the school district and was going to take over the school and like, Hey, we, we need a a service desk analyst to run these sites uh would you do that so uh i went full-time you know uh with them and nice. i did that for about a year and a half okay and then um i went to another school district as a uh, the network administrator okay it's amazing how much experience you can get at a school district because you literally have all these hackers right? It's students that just want to hack and you can't prosecute them. You can't really <laughs> do much to them, right? Um, and uh, so some of the best people I know in, in the IT industry came up through school districts because, I mean, you had to harden the heck out of everything because these students, you know, they just have free time. They're just going to try to hack, right? I mean, it, it, I, I'm not trying to overstate it. It's not like every student is a hacker, but there's certainly a percentage of very, very smart kids. Well, funny story is, um, you know, there was three high schools in this district. And uh, one, of the, one of the kids at one of the high schools, he, he noticed a security flaw in the network and uh, reported. So we actually kind of took him on as kind of like mm. a part-time summer, summer helper, mm. you know, and um, he's fishing around in, in the, the back office of, of one of the high schools and he finds an old server. So he decides to, to plug it in, see what's on it and connects it to the network. And it's, uh, it's running DHCP on it. Oh, causing out everything and all all the sites are connected. So all of a sudden, just boom, 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 boom. (laughs) (laughs) That that was fun, fun to clean up. So it's interesting. Um, I guess it was a pretty flat network because if you have a routed IP network, the on a far distant gateway, you have to literally point um, because DHCP is is by nature, a broadcast that occurs. And so normally it's bound to that particular network segment. So the router on that segment has to have a DHCP helper to point it at a particular IP. So on those remote networks, they would have been pointing at the new server, not the old one. So maybe there was a router configuration that also supported the broadcast being pointed to that old server IP as well. Is that yeah. kind of a start? Okay, yeah. I was just I kind of going back just... to my networking days. I was thinking like, how did how could that have happened? <laughs> yeah, it's a decommissioned one for before I got there and uh, they just never e-wasted it. And Interesting. Wow, that's crazy. In. That so, is, so yeah, brought a network down unintentionally. Yeah. He wasn't malicious about it. He was, he was just fascinated, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's very interesting. So, okay, so then you, you got a ton of experience um, over this time on networking, which is really cool. You were responsible for Cisco, ASA, security, you know, firewalls, wireless networks, you know, ruckus and, and switches. Um, so during this time, you know, you're, you're really understanding about security because you're actually having to secure these things as a network administrator, right? You don't have a default password on these things, you know, you're doing, and, and that's why I think to, to our earlier point of the conversation, if you want to get cybersecurity IT first, because in IT, you're literally doing, you know, you have security responsibilities, you know, as a network administrator, it's just part of the job, even though it's not full-time. So, so I think the, the experience and kind of going the route you did is perfect to kind of segue over. And so I think maybe part of the conversation is how we present ourselves in a resume in an interview is really, really important because if we, if we highlight the aspects of our past that are not directly relevant to cyber, what's going to happen in the mind, I can just tell you as a manager, right? What's going to happen to me is I'm going to say, this person's not a fit. They, they, they're too skilled in these non areas. So my, my feedback to you when I looked at your resume um, was let's laser focus this thing to exactly what that, what that manager is thinking about, because then it's going to go, oh, match, 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 match. Okay. I feel good here. Let's talk. Right. I think it's going to get, I think it's going to get your foot in the door more effectively. That's how I look at a resume. I literally, when I get resumes for, you know, I just got one the other day, um, someone that's applying, you know, to, to my company, if I, if I, in the first 45 seconds, if I don't see stuff that's matching what I'm looking for, I don't, I don't even look at it. The person sadly may have a ton of experience there, but I have too many to look through to take a gamble and, and book the time and everything, you know? And so I really want to see someone where in the first boom, right away, they're just passionate about cyber. They love it. They're also, I look personally for people that are, um, you know, really a joy to work with, you know, that have great attitudes that, that are good. They're going to be a good team player. Right. And so I think it's important in the objective statement to kind of show a little bit about your personality um, because it's not just, you know, in a good workplace, it's not just everything, you know, you know uh, it's also, can I work with this person? You know, can yeah. I connect with them? Right. So. Um, if you don't mind me asking, do you think it is the cover letter, worth putting in i i love cover letters i i think what it does is it shows me this person took a little bit of extra time in saying why they want to work for my company and what skills they have that would actually help me and it just it shows me so much more about this person because if i have you know 10 applicants and one of them wrote the letter and it's and it allows me to see more of their personality because think about resumes they're so fixed it's like chronological or whatever and it doesn't really kind of tell, okay, why, why did they apply all the, it, it's a little bit more of a backstory. It's a little bit more about them. Um, I, I would say that 90% of the time, if the cover letter is written well, I'm going to call them and actually do a phone interview with them. I'm going to at least talk to them if they did. If they took the time to write a nice cover letter, I'm going to do it. So for me personally, I love cover letters. Um, I highly recommend them. Yeah. It takes more time um, because you should not do a generic cover letter, in my opinion. 
I would recommend if you're going to do a cover letter, customize it for that particular company. You know, spend a little bit of time and say, hey, here's why I want to work for you. It's your mission statements, what you guys do. I, I've always, you know, that's if that's true, right? And and you kind of, you know, do that. Um, yeah, I think those are really important. That's a great question. So, okay, so you're at the, uh, the school district for a while, and then um, then you become a technology manager, right? Um, and as a technology manager, you're responsible for quite a bit, right? Um, so much. <laughs> you, you've, own, you've overseen a major network security upgrade, right? $2 million worth of network equipment, firewalls and switches, mobile device management. So you're responsible for iOS devices, uh, which is really kind of cool because you know you know how to secure those now. So now you have an MDM, a powerful MDM. Now you can really kind of lock those down and really kind of protect those things, right? Yeah. Uh, firewall audits, kind of going through those. Um, so firewall audits, you're making sure that, you know, if there was a old internet facing rule pointing traffic to some server, if that server has been decommissioned, hey, let's close down those ports. Let's close down those rules, right? Making sure the ACLs are all accurate, you know, that they're still necessary, cleaning those things up, right? That's so important. Um, email security. So making sure, because, you know, we talk about this a lot in, in this podcast, if, if a hacker is going to get into a network, 90% of the time, it's a phishing email is the initial way they can. It's just too easy, right? Anyone yes. can write an email from anywhere in the world. And the chances that somebody's going to click on it is pretty high. We were just talking about the effectiveness of a cover letter. Think about that same amount of energy that a hacker puts into writing a, a very well-written phishing email. If you can do a little bit of research, Doug, on someone's LinkedIn profile, their social media, and you sort of impersonate their best friend or a family member saying, hey, look at this photo I just took of this vacation, right? The click rate is going to go through the roof if somebody does, and we call that a spear phishing. When, it, when it's an intentional, targeted, a lot of thought went into that man, people are going to open those attachments and, and click on those links, right? They are. Yeah. Uh, you were responsible for vulnerability management. So auditing servers, making sure that they're up to date with patches. Um, boy, that's tough, right? Keeping everything patched currently. Um, it used to be that there was this real struggle. If I deploy this patch, what if it blue screens the server? What if it takes the network down, right? But if I don't patch, am I going to be vulnerable? Am I going to get hit? So you always had to kind of weigh this. And, and one of the considerations, right, was if I patch too soon, I don't want to be the first person to figure out this just bricked my network. If I wait too long, now there's this window of opportunity for hackers that might be using Shodan and other kind of internet facing things where you could literally just type something and go, okay, boom, here's all the IPs that are vulnerable to this particular issue or that have these ports open, right? And so, wow, uh, tell me about that struggle of how did you find the balance of how soon to patch versus the risk of a patch hurting and breaking a server? Right. As soon as we get notification and the patch is out, um, we, we do try to push it. I mean, we try to wait until the weekend, you know, like a Friday night. Mm -hmm. So we have the weekend in case something like that happens. Because uh, we, we do have monitoring so that we can see if the server goes down mm -hmm. or not. Um, but backups, I mean, just yeah. got to have your image backups. Got to have backups, yeah. You find out how important a backup is uh, oftentimes too late, right? Or you find out that... Uh, 
geez, um, that the the backup didn't get enough data to in order to make it actually uh, valuable. Um, I can't tell you the number of times calls and issues and, and people that didn't test their backups almost, gosh, it's a high percentage of the time. If you're not testing your backups to verify that they're actually, you know, working, it's like you're, you're blindly running, you know, I, I don't know the analogy here, but like, imagine you've got this car, right? And you're about to go on this road trip across the country. And you don't check the tire pressure. You don't check to see the last time this thing had an oil change. You don't do any sort of testing whatsoever. And you're just hoping that the thing just works. Well, okay, you break down. Oh, gosh, you know, this thing just never got tested. So it's like you wouldn't do that in real life, right? But so many IT shops, and I, I, I have a theory. I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on why this doesn't happen. A, it's time. In order to actually test a backup, you need to dedicate a full day setting aside where you're not handling tickets or service requests and everything to create virtual machines in a network that replicates, okay, I've got a, a copy of my domain controller here, right? So, so and that takes effort because you have to like take a sysfall backup to rebuild a DC or restore that from backup. The skill of restoring a server and, you know, you mentioned DHCP and all the, you know, services and everything to get that thing running. Yeah. It takes time. It takes time. It takes experience. It takes expertise. And if you can't make that backup network, that, that sort of DR environment, if you can't make that match production perfectly, if just a few things are off, then when you get into a real world situation, it didn't match production perfectly. So then your procedures, you know, that you're trying to follow aren't there. Right. And so, you know, this is all these things are relevant to cybersecurity because these are things that hackers exploit. They exploit the fact that, okay, if I delete your backup and I deploy ransomware, how are you going to restore your network after a ransomware attack? So now you have to take a backup of your backup. You have to get like three copies, right? Like one cloud backup, one offline backup. And in order to really prepare for ransomware, you got you to gotta think through the way a hacker looks at it, right? Um, I've heard stories of hackers that tamper with backups for months so that they've literally waited until you're you know, things came back. So now yeah. their code is there. So when you go to restore, boom, they're still in there. Right. <laughs> and, and that actually gets back into forensics. You have to, in order to do proper, you know, you have to do the forensics to know, okay, we've evicted for the hacker. Now it's time to do the, the restore. Otherwise, if you do the restore too soon and the hacker's still in there, you just wasted a full day or two doing restores because you haven't evicted the hacker. So the forensics is so critical after detecting an attack, don't start your restores until you can have some level of confidence with forensics. Forensics is what gives you the confidence that the hacker's not still in the network, right? If I remember, uh, remember Matson shipping, shipping mm -hmm. containers? They had that huge, huge hack. Mm -hmm. And I think that was what they did is they restored everything. And uh, they had been in there for months. Yeah. And when they brought it back up, oop, right back in yeah. again. Right back in, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they just got owned hard. Yeah, and that's um, yeah. So the so how do you make sure that your backups are not tampered with? How do you make sure that the hacker hasn't like been in there for a very very long time? That's tough. Um, hackers, you know, initially when they you know their initial access, they're they're not trying to 
to have all the alarms and, and things go off, right? They're, they're trying to be pretty stealthy. Uh, so that can be, that can be pretty difficult to detect. Um, yeah, I think, just, uh, yeah, go ahead. Just recently went through a, a security audit for, for the whole organization because we're trying to get uh, cybersecurity insurance. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but companies have that, uh-huh. you know, um, that's insures them for millions of dollars. But uh-huh. you need to have a bunch of check marks. Uh-huh. You know, you need to have your EDR as your endpoint on, on all your systems. You need to make sure that you're, you have secure firewalls or maybe multiple firewalls for that defense in depth. Uh-huh. Um, so just going through that, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that they pointed out that that yeah. you know some stuff we were missing. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize. That. <laughs> So one 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 tip I, I'd give to you and also all the listeners is um, do not store anything related to your cybersecurity insurance policy on your network whatsoever because what what often happens is the uh, really top hacking hacking groups that get access to your network one of the first things they're going to search for they're going to search for keywords like insurance and stuff they're going to get a copy of your policy and go oh they're insured for two million. Guess how much do you think the ransom demand is going to be? It's going to be exactly what your insurance payment is. Uh, too much, they know you're not going to pay. And too little, they're not going to get the most of what they could. And so keeping that offline can actually give you some additional you know, uh, leverage in that kind of a situation. So um, we talk about oftentimes in cybersecurity, this concept of assume breach. Assuming that you've been breached and having that mindset allows you to take a mindset of hunting for the hacker who's already in the network. And, you know, if we have that mindset, okay, let's assume that this folder of where I have my cybersecurity insurance policies, it's going to be opened. And so then this little tip here, you can drop these um, little canary tokens in that folder. So when someone opens a document, you get an email. So um, these are, you know, there's a free service out there that generates these little tokens and you could kind of just sprinkle them across the network in folders where no one should be opening up certain documents. You can give the document a file name like do not open, you know, this is the salary history of everyone or this is our passwords. As soon as that document gets open, boom, you've got a hacker in the network. Time, to, you know, it alerts you to someone's presence, right? So that's a, that's a really interesting you know, answer to the question, how do, if we have that assumed breach mindset and we're hunting uh, for someone in the network, how can we get that early detection? It's really when someone's behavior changes, you know, it's, it's these actions that don't align to normal patterns. And uh, there's a lot of technology out there that can kind of help with that. But I think those canary tokens are kind of fun to put everywhere. And that's always an interesting conversation. Um, so you've, you've had some additional experience in two-factor authentication. I think that's really important. Uh, you've had some experience setting up single sign-on. You know, single sign-on is, is really valuable because if you have a hundred different applications and somebody leaves your organization, you disable their Active Directory account. And now all those applications are now disabled as well because they all pointed to that, you know, probably works... Um, against you in some cases too. If a hacker gets an account, now they can you know, access all those apps. Um, but the value of single sign-on when pointing it to an identity provider, such as Azure Active Directory, 
hopefully no one's using ADFS because it's uh, you know a little outdated, but say Azure Active Directory, um, you can then e more easily add a, a two-factor authentication solution onto it. And that allows you to secure access to the identity. Identity is the new security perimeter in this world of software as a service. So 10 years ago, if you had firewalls, that was sufficient oftentimes as a perimeter to try to protect your internal applications. Now that the cloud is out there and all it takes is a username and password to sign into any kind of internet facing cloud service, your firewall is not going to help you in those cases, right? So you having your skill of, of having SSO pointing to an identity provider where you can then layer on two-factor authentication, I think is a really critical, uh, great experience that you have there too. Um, if there's any employers listening to this, Doug, any any additional kind of experience that you have that you want to maybe highlight that that you think might really kind of um, be valuable for someone who's looking for a full-time, and that's kind of what I think what we should probably have you share is, what is the ideal kind of full-time cybersecurity role that, that you're looking for, for any kind of employers that are listening? Um, I like the job description for like the SOC, SOC analyst, mm -hmm. you know, um, just, you know, seeing the the threat feeds come in and, and i think with the the analysis background i have from the, that bachelor's uh, i think yeah. i would fit there but um you know for 14 years uh i had to document everything you know as a police officer so pretty good at, at writing a, a report okay by now um so I, I just i just think it's neat to be able to respond real time mm -hmm. see something come in and then you know, put a block in. So yeah. And um, do you have what kind of like sim experience do you have? Um, uh, I'm assuming on the networking side, you probably configured some some devices to kind of point to a centralized logging location. But any any particular vendor that you've had some experience with? I've worked with quite a few. Um, uh, Right now, I mean, we, we have a uh, Meraki, but like um, I've been playing around with um, uh, Splunk, mm -hmm. um, just just the free stuff, and I've gone through some of the, the classes that they have online. Nice, perfect. Okay, yeah. so if you're an employer listening to this, Doug has some Splunk experience, and uh, he's also configured it on the networking side there. But more importantly, his interest in initially is you know full time kind of SOC analyst role. So. Um, Next, next kind of, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, Doug, um, very, very curious. Um, any thoughts on how, how did we get to, to where we are today, where allegedly there's 3 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs out there, right? Yeah. And how can someone with a master's, right, in cybersecurity, with all the experience you have in forensics and networking, all this kind of stuff, why do you think it's so difficult? What, what's been your experience? What's your opinion on, on what's going on here uh, with employment and, and what's going on? You know, I, I mean, I've been focusing on trying to get a job for the past year now in security. And so, you know, I went, I got the security plus, I got the, the CYSA, the, you know, the security analyst. Yeah. Um, you know, I have the CCNA um, and I'm currently working on the CISP. 
yeah. uh, that certified information system security professional. Yeah. So recently I was at uh, the RSA conference up in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Um, and I, yeah, I've read three of the SIS books already. I should probably just go take the test. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I figured, you know what? They're doing a two day boot camp up there. Um, I want to go to the conference anyways. So I'll go do the boot camp. And walking into that room um, was a little overwhelming because pretty much everybody there is either, uh, you know, a CIO or a CISO, uh-huh. um, you know, trying to get that for the, the organization. So I, I talked to some of them and I explained like what I was trying to do. Uh-huh. Um, and they're like, you're on paper, you're overqualified for these entry jobs you're applying for. That's, you know, that's what they're telling me. My, my problem is, uh-huh. is because I've gotten all this education, all these certifications, but I've never had a job specifically uh-huh. for that. And that might be my downfall. <laughs> so that's where I think, um, changing that conversation with that, say in that interview, uh, is you actually do have the experience like in, in, in deploying 2FA and config in hardening Cisco AC firewalls. And, and, and that's exactly why when I went through your resume, I kind of like, I, I kind of brought that out and kind of focused and highlighted those things. Cause the truth is, is you, you do have the experience and you have been doing it. And it's just really more of, I think, stating it like, Hey, I've been doing this like, um, 50% of my, capability responsibilities is really cybersecurity. I'm, I'm just looking for a role where I can do this really full time. And because of my background and my interests and my personality and, and focus, I would love to be able to do this, this kind of, you know, soccer lens role. Um, from an employer's perspective, I kind of see what they're saying. I think when somebody says overqualified, and this is not just for you, Doug, but for really, any, really anyone listening, essentially what the fear is, the fear is as a manager, this person is, is not going to be in this role very long. They're going to try to take my job. They're going to try to, you know, go somewhere else. And what a manager is really looking for is to avoid the headache of having to go through this interview process again in six months or a year, because it takes up so much time. So trying to find someone who's going to be a good long-term fit for this. So you can kind of get ahead of that and saying, look, I, I do have a lot of experience, all this kind of stuff. It's only because I'm finding that that's what's kind of necessary to get into this thing. Um, but I, I will commit to you, right? And I think there is some, some value in committing to somebody that if you can give me a shot here, I will do this for at least a year and a half, two years. You know, you have my word on that, right? That's going to that's gonna get ahead of, of that sort of concern that some people might have of that. And, you know... For what it's worth, I think that might be the psychology of what's going on behind that and how you can maybe address that is giving someone like, hey, you know, I will give this a shot for a couple of years. It's just, I just want to do this. I just love this. You know, when when you love something, you should just, keep, you know, keep going no matter, how, and it's going to be worth it. You know, I think, you know, my dad always told me, hey, if, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, you know, and and I think this uh, this is worth it, you know. Yeah. So any uh, any final thoughts, any um. Uh, anything else, Doug, you wanted to chat about? Um, you know, and because you are a, a business owner, um, you know, and a manager, when, what, what do you think would be the ideal certification? Mm. I guess. Yeah. So, like, you know, you, when you it see comes it on to, paper and that's like the best one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so the, uh, you know, the GIAC kind of stuff for, for SOC analysts, um, uh, you know, I, I would say that 
you know, that's probably the best you could do in terms of that. Um, the CISSP is clearly the the top um, cert, uh, you know, just general cybersecurity. So that's 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 really really solid um, for sure, and and it's impressive that you've you know you've already read those books like three times. So when I took the CISSP back in two thousand four, you know, it was just there was like one book back then it was it was this thick i read it twice i took the test and i got really lucky and passed the first time um and so i think if you've already kind of read you know those things like three times i think you're ready i think you should just go take it do you actually have a um the ability to create a, a dmz um, either in your home network or work network, or even in a like Azure, where you can actually get a kind of a honeypot uh, that's internet facing, and then feed that into Splunk and start kind of looking at the alerts and alarms and and uh, that kind of thing. Have you have you already built something like that? Yeah. So here um, at the the company, um, I, I created a DMZ um, for for some services. Um, that I could spool up a, a VM mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. my server, but also at home, you know, I got a 19U rack with two servers and nice. firewalls, all kinds nice. of stuff. So I can create that at home too. Yeah, that might be kind of interesting is like, you know, put something out there, put the Splunk agent, you know, like you mentioned, there's a free kind of Splunk agent, put that on there and then, um, you know, purposely like, don't bring it up to the latest patch levels see how long it lasts yeah. i did that once um when uh, do you remember the wanna cry worm mm -hmm. so uh just for fun i created a virtual machine you know up in azure and didn't have the patch and and left the uh, server message block the smb protocol open and i think it was like five minutes the thing got hit with ransomware you know it was, it was so quick um but then it was kind of cool to go back forensically and kind of look at okay, what did the how did you know the dropper come in? What did it do to the registry? What persistence, you know, kind of things, just kind of learning, you know, that was kind of fascinating. Um, but I think getting some reps on that, you know, and and purposefully kind of, you know, uh doing that would you can deploy like uh Sysmon. Uh Sysmon is a, a free tool um to really observe what's going on on the endpoint. Um Another one would be like Snort uh, is a host-based intrusion detection agent. Yeah. And then maybe kind of feeding those things in uh, to Splunk would be cool. Um, well, hey, please keep in touch, Doug. And I've really enjoyed this this conversation. Um, uh, and I'm really hoping, you know, that, that someone listening will reach out to you. Uh, would you like me to, I can link your LinkedIn on there so someone can get a hold of you if you like. That'd be, that'd be great. I appreciate that. Okay, perfect. It's the uh, YouTube channel. Yeah, so the YouTube channel, if you search for Cybersecurity 101 with Joe and Larry, right now we have one video out there. And it's me kind of showing him how to set up an Active Directory domain controller and then uh, showing him how to create new users and offboard users. So he he the last interview he had... He didn't get the job because he didn't have experience onboarding or offboarding users. Really? And so I, I said, okay, well, let's do this. Let's create a video of me showing you how to do that. And so uh, 
you know, it's about an hour long video and we actually create a virtual machine, install AD, and then I show him how to create users. And then I, we create an Office 365 tenant and we create users there too. So he can have both the cloud and the on-prem kind of experience doing that. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to transition to YouTube because that way people can get, see more hands-on of how these things are done. Whereas the audio is kind of cool. It's kind of talking, but it's just, it's not getting the job done for Larry. My goal is to get Larry, you know, in and as his mentor i'm committed however long it takes right so uh you know that's we're gonna switch over to youtube awesome all right i'll start watching yeah. awesome <laughs> well doug very nice to meet you good luck sir thank you have a good day all right see ya bye to all the listeners over the last two and a half years hundreds of thousands of people countries all over the world top 100 podcasts in india and russia and just international audience first first it's amazing first uh, we just like to thank god for that and um thank uh, god for all our listeners wow i didn't know it was that many joe showed me the number so i'm like what but thank you guys um um for just listening to our podcast hopefully it helped um help someone out um i've got a few people that wrote me well not a few a couple hundred people that wrote me on uh, linkedin and then how it helped them out so um yeah that's all this is for it's kind of joe's helping me out and we're trying to help out uh, a few other people in the you know in in the whole scheme of things and we you know with the youtube channel that was kind of with our YouTube channel now, that's the kind of the ideal to continue to help people um, really, uh, get into the field. That's good stuff. We're going to keep going. We're just going to enjoy one day at a time, just, you know, growing together, learning together. And, uh, you know, God always provides. And, uh, you know, we'll just we'll just keep keep charging forward, brother. So. All right. Well, all right. we'll see you see everyone over on YouTube. See you on YouTube.